Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer. And because I'm not busy enough already, I'm about to start a newsletter as well. Stay tuned for details about that. Maxed Out is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. If you've supported the podcast with a donation already, you have my personal thanks. If you haven't yet, please donate what you're able, whether it's $5 or $10 as a one-time contribution or a monthly gift. Every little bit helps us keep producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. Today is episode 10, the LNG debate. My guest today is Stuart Muir, an historian and former journalist who was the deputy managing editor at the Vancouver Sun until 2009. Now he's the founder and CEO of ResourceWorks, an organization that says it's dedicated to, quote, leading respectful, inclusive, and fact-based dialogue on natural resource development. That sounds like a perfect fit for this podcast. Stuart and I have crossed digital swords in the past, but our exchanges have, for the most part, been respectful and fact-based. That said, I think the place where we've disagreed most frequently is on LNG. For background, I'm a supporter of best-in-class LNG projects in BC. I always have been. Ones that have lower greenhouse gas emissions profiles than their competitors. And I've been a very public backer of LNG Canada and a host of smaller projects for years now. But I think it's fair to say that Stuart's view is a bit more expansive than mine about the role that LNG can play in meeting our climate targets. Like many oil and gas industry advocates, he says that LNG exports are the key to meeting those commitments. And whatever emissions might arise here in Canada, displacing coal-fired electricity in our exporting markets and other parts of the world more than makes up for them. And I think he probably suspects that our prime minister has been alligator-arming this file for years, when maybe a more enthusiastic embrace of LNG exports could have gotten more projects built. I want to get into the details of all of this, both because I think there's a fundamental accounting issue at play here, but also because the renewed focus on LNG often obscures what's really happening in the world right now and the work we need to be doing in Canada. So without further ado, let's get started. Stuart, welcome to Maxed Out. Thank you, Max. So I want to start with some very recent news, which came out late last week. Uh, it's about Repsol, a, a European oil and gas company that that has an LNG import facility in eastern Canada in New Brunswick. And the plan was or certainly they were kicking the tires on, converting it into an export facility. But as a Bloomberg story noted, the, the company has decided it's not going to do that. A spokesperson from Repsol said that the project was not economical because the costs associated with shipping gas from Western Canada and building new export infrastructure in the East were just too high. Now, to me, this would seem to confirm the Prime Minister's very much maligned comment about there not being a business case for East Coast LNG exports to Europe. In your view, is there still a realistic case to LNG facilities in the Maritimes? Given that it would take the better part of a decade, I think, to get it built and permitted, even in sort of a best case scenario, and when Europe has already declared that it intends to phase out natural gas even faster than before Russia invaded Ukraine. When I look at the Newfoundland LNG project, which is a different one based on drawing gas from the Canadian Atlantic oil and gas fields, piping it to Newfoundland and freighting it as LNG there and shipping it to markets that want it. That one, as far as I know, is still going. So the business case for that, it seems like the midstream or the pipeline side of it is the problematic one, which is not a surprise to anyone. I mean, we know where Quebec has stood on this. 
when I look at the consumption of gas in Europe, I'm mindful that the European Union last summer passed a law declaring gas in certain circumstances to be a green energy source. That law was made by a country during the war, but also one that is recognizing it needs to have not just a flip the switch mentality on energy transition, but also a pathway to get there that goes through different stages. So I am not so sure that I would take that corporate bromide as being a absolute statement about the condition of things. And I would also remind you, Max, that it was in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea that there was a parliamentary standing committee call evidence on whether there should be Canadian LNG made available for Europe in these circumstances very similar circumstances. At the time, the advice from a number of experts was get this done because it will take a number of years. It will take eight years to get an LNG project going. And you know you should start now. I, I would say the same is true now. Just because it takes a long time to build them, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Yeah. If we had a time machine and we could go back to you know a decade ago, we would absolutely be building LNG facilities on the East Coast, given what we know today. But I mean, I think one of the crucial differences between 2014 and 2023 is that back then, Germany was very happy to be importing Russian gas and didn't seem particularly interested in weaning itself off of it. Today, we have a German political class that is seized with the importance of driving gas demand out of their economy as quick as they can without hurting their their large industry and everything else. So, you know, in that circumstance and understanding that even with the most favorable governments in power and, and in permitting in place, it would take until I think the end of this decade to get a new facility in place on the East Coast. What's the business case there? How, how, how does that make a sense from a financial perspective? Well, I think LNG is a seaborne commodity. It goes to where it's wanted, which is one of the attractive elements of it during early stages of the Russian war of 2022, we saw a huge amount of ships from the Gulf Coast of the United States go towards Europe with cargoes. We saw all kinds of diversions around the world so that Europe could get what it needed when it needed it. That's what LNG allows you to do. You can, can set it where it's needed. And if it's needed somewhere else, you can ship it there too. So I don't think an East Coast project is necessarily tied to European demand, although obviously just as the West Coast of Canada is looking to Asia because it's close, uh, so too would an East Coast of Canada project want to get to where a close market is for a number of reasons. Yeah, let's shift to the West Coast now. There's clearly a better case for projects there. The NDP government just approved uh, a new project there, uh, Cedar LNG, which you know I think is interesting on any number of levels. That major project and, and the smaller Indigenous-led ones, which are awesome, good projects, and can't wait to see those in service. Do you think there's capacity for another big one, maybe the Kitimat LNG project that Chevron has an approval for, something else? Like, Is there an opportunity to go bigger than a lot of people are thinking right now? I think we're in agreement there on, on this issue, Max. You know, it's not a question of, hey, we've got a lot of gas in the ground in the Motney and these other shale reserves in Alberta and BC. It's a matter of what is the market demand? Who needs this? And do they need it for reasons that create a business case for it? And I think the answer is they do all kinds of things. One of them is that every country in the world that has signed up to the Paris Accord and other agreements, which is you know, almost every country, is beholden to its own treaty agreements. They have to do things they're doing. We tend to focus on what we've signed up for in Canada, obviously, but uh, all those countries are going through the same thing. Some are more excited about it than others. But those who are in Asia, where they have growing economies, where they have a demand for more energy to allow people to escape from poverty, I mean, that's what they are wanting to do. 
I mean, we need more energy of every type. We want it to be in the arc of history towards decarbonization. The questions are more about how quickly do we get there? So how does Canadian West Coast gas fit into it? So I think we have facilities here, or we could have facilities here that get Canadian gas to where it's needed. I think when I look at the country like India, they're not choosing to have a smaller economy or to cut off people's power. They don't have enough gas right now. What are they doing? Well, they're making sure that they are running their electricity plants so that people have power in their homes and businesses. And they're making sure that big industry, they have a lot of steel making, aluminum, all kinds of industries also have coal. So what if we were to get something that was maybe not perfect, maybe not dilithium crystals, but we could get them something that gets them in the right direction, right? I just think the logic is strong for this. Dilithium crystals would be the the optimal thing here, but I, I, I'm in agreement that the perfect is the enemy of good. One of the frustrations I have here in Calgary is that, well, we should get credit for the emissions reductions that happen as a result of LNG exports in Asia. Those reductions should somehow count towards our Paris Accord uh, commitments sort of be counted in our inventory. I mean, that's just not how the accounting system of the Paris Accord works. But what's your view of that argument that we should get credit for the emissions reductions that happen in other countries? Yeah, I mean, you're referring to at most to Article 6. It's not unreasonable to ask, well, where's the beef here? When are we going to get to the point where this kind of mechanism can exist? But you can say, well, maybe never. Okay. But last week in the approval of the Cedar LNG in British Columbia, we did see a reference to offsets, which I believe are cited in the BC climate legislation as you know part of the solution here. An offset uh, to me isn't that different than what you're referring to. It's just a question of how is it implemented? Is it a local offset? Is it a global and local offset? How does that function? So, you know, I think the BC government uh, may be noodling some of this too. All right. Let's just pause there for a second because- both you and I know what ITMOs are, but I suspect there's a lot of a lot of my listeners who who may be a little confused by that jargon. So an ITMO is an internationally transferred mitigation opportunity. Uh, what does that mean? It, basically, the idea is that under the Paris Accord, if there are lower cost emissions reductions opportunities out there that can happen in other parts of the world, we don't want to stymie those from happening and, and essentially force countries to to focus only on higher cost emissions reduction opportunities in their own jurisdiction. And so the idea is that that countries could trade these ITMOs to to help meet their their Paris Accord responsibilities. But you know, it's an interesting concept. It it hasn't actually borne any fruit through all the, the negotiations and discussions over the last almost eight years since the Paris Accord was first signed. So the problem with thinking that we would get credit for emissions reductions that happen because of LNG exports is that these ITMOs have value to the countries where our LNG is theoretically going. They're not going to give them to us for free. It sort of muddies up the business case for exporting LNG if on top of that, we're also paying these countries for the emissions reductions that are happening because of the LNG. I'm not sure how that would would ever be a, a viable business case. And and it's also, as I said, you know, mostly theoretical. I don't recall any LNG contract that has involved uh, the use of these ITMOs. I understand why provinces like Alberta want to get credit for emissions reductions that are happening somewhere else because it means they don't have to make them here. 
but that that's looking for a free lunch. I think we're well past that point when it comes to climate policy in the year 2023, but that's my perspective on them anyways. Uh, have you seen any examples that this is a viable and meaningful way to reduce emissions and that we could actually get credit for reductions that happen in other parts of the world? Or is this just something of a pipe dream? Well, maybe the question is what kind of credits? I noticed that when the Saguenay Energy Project and LG project uh, at Saguenay in Quebec. It was refused a permit last year by the Quebec government. Later, the federal government also refused a permit, but the key refusal was Quebec's. They had uh, more than one reason, but I, I thought it was significant to see the, the reasoning they provided included that, okay, Saguenay LNG, if you want to export this natural gas to Europe, you're going to have to certify for us that it is being used to knock out higher emitting sources of energy production. But if you actually look at the ruling, you can see that there's actually you know quite a heavy weighting given to this consideration. So if the Quebec government, which broadly is, I would say, the, the most uh, fossil fuel averse jurisdiction in Canada, is saying this, probably the reverse of that would be something they would accept. You know, If Saguenay LNG could say, hey, we do have these certificates, here's how we would do it, then the Quebec government could presumably say, oh, all right, then we're good with your project. Now, if you have the ability to certify this happening, and I don't think it's very easy or practical, so I'm not advocating for it, but suppose you had it, might you then monetize it through some market mechanism? And might that be the way in which we can get to this, this idea of trading credits? It's an interesting idea. Jason Dion, who who has written about this, I think he wrote a piece in 2019 for the Institute for Research on Public Policy, basically saying that we can't use ITMOs to get credit for LNG exports. And he wrote something uh, last December for uh, the Climate Institute, basically revisiting the arguments. He said, mm -hmm. there's this belief in in certain circles that, well, we can change the rules to get credit for lower carbon exports. And that would help us, obviously, in terms of our emissions inventory with LNG. And he says, problem with that is that if we had such a system, then yes, we would get credit for the LNG, but we would get debited for our higher carbon exports, i.e. oil sands. The net on that for Canada would probably not be great. He says, once we account for Canada's high carbon exports, it's not clear that we'd come out ahead. So this all sort of seems like just wishful thinking be careful what you wish for, right? Um, no, I can I can see that concern. And I think this is where, where I really do believe, Max, we're on the same page. I think we both are looking for the same outcomes here. I think <laughs> you would agree that we want to have a successful country, a society that has got prosperity in it, that uh, allows people to achieve things in life by you know working and, and, and accomplishing things, that we have a high quality social safety nets and all of those things that seem to be the Canadian way. We are also part of the global decarbonization story in a way that is commensurate to our heft as a country. We're a little country that's in the G7. Well, we're big landmass, but we're really a little country. We don't belong in the G7. The giant sucking sound is is the United States sucking technological innovations from Europe and Canada and probably lots of other places into it to get all these great Biden subsidies for decarbonization. We need to get busier in Canada on this. I think there's an awareness, certainly in policy circles, that the, the Inflation Reduction Act is a very big deal. At the political level, it still feels like the conversation is around uh, Justin Trudeau and Daniel Smith. It just seems like people are not focusing on what is the real issue here, which is, as you say, there is a sucking sound of clean energy capital that is pouring into the United States from other parts of the country and other parts of the world. What do we do about that? What should we be doing about that from your perspective? So here's the United States on the one hand, they're pumping 
massive resources into encouraging all kinds of clean energy development, but then at the same time, they're enabling the the Willow oil project in Alaska, the 160,000 barrels a day project. And, you know, there's a few people who are saying, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. But for the most part, that's America being America. You know, they, they're able to contain these contradictions and, and move ahead. I, I think, you know, our Canadian model is a little more the two solitudes. We, we have some people in Alberta causing things not to move as quickly as they could, and everyone's losing because of it. There's something to be learned that from this idea that we can pursue multiple things at the same time. I agree. It seems to me that if you wanted to do energy policy well in Canada, you would let British Columbians do it by and large because they'll have a unique understanding of both the industry side, the environmental side, and the indigenous side in a way that Albertans I've always found simply don't understand. And certainly people in Ontario and Quebec don't understand from the other perspective. You know, they're too heavily weighted perhaps to the environmental side. But anyways, that's a digression. What would your assessment be of the prime minister's record on energy, on the development of our resources, on managing climate risks? Yeah. You know, I've recently appeared at the Standing Committee on Natural Resources. They wanted to talk about issues relating to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That was before the revised uh, price tag of that to now over $30 billion. That one is is going ahead because uh, the Trudeau cabinet made a decision to acquire the company that was saying, we're going to leave this project and leave the country. They did buy it. And I, I felt that the MPs, the liberal MPs I spoke to uh, were anxious to get some credit for making these difficult decisions. And, and not just simply being slammed by the opposition all the time or being slammed by the NDP at bloc for different issues. And I, I thought it was fair to give the Liberals credit for getting this project done. What do you think their legacy is going to be here? Well, I think carbon pricing is an interesting one. I, I think when the Trudeau government uh, said we're going to have a federal carbon tax, they might have said, well, let's wait for the United States to have it because our economies are so linked. If we had waited, we'd still be waiting because the United States does not have a national carbon tax, but they did it. And so I think it's meant to be a driver of innovation to encourage through uh, the tax system activities that are desired and discourage activities that are not desired. I, I think that's a pretty good legacy for the prime minister. He may not be loved in all quarters or maybe any quarters of Alberta. It, it's something he can definitely put in his uh, hall of fame. There's an opportunity for the Alberta NDP to have a better conversation in this election that is coming up here around energy, because I think there is a mindset shift that is underway that is not represented by the government and its rhetoric around war rooms and just constantly bagging on the federal government. And I don't think that the NDP, for whatever reason, has the courage to occupy that space and tell that story that, no, no, like we're, we're problem solvers here. You know, the energy sector is about at its core solving problems and, you know, using technology and, and getting to the bottom of things. And, and they're ready to do this. You know, I think if you're an engineer, solving the carbon problem is probably pretty interesting in the same way that solving the oil sands problem generation ago was interesting. It's a, techn yep. it's a technical and, and intellectual challenge. Yeah, that's what they do. Give an engineer a problem and the engineer you know, wants to go and solve it. You know, there's one thing, Max, I just, I've thought about this over the years. Why is it that we have a resistance to just going out into the field? You know, I, I think uh, any political leader could do more of this, go into Alberta, go into BC and look what's happening. I just wish the prime minister would go out there, find people like who, they don't have an ideological ax to grind. You would find stories like this of how communities are part of this, how everyone wants to get better all the time. 
little ways. And I wrote a note, I think, to the, the Liberal campaign years ago during the start of the campaign. I said, you should get out to Alberta and, and talk to people like this, be seen out there. But there seems to be a great fear to be seen within a thousand miles of any of these great stories. And I really don't understand that, Max. Well, I think part of it is they're afraid of the hostility when they go into Alberta. It is rarely a good news story. It is rarely received well. I think a big part of the problem with the disconnect between our political discourse and the reality that's unfolding on the ground is that there is this sense that there are these two sides that don't have common interests. And they do have common interests. And I wish we would see uh, the premier of Alberta go out and be a little more seen at companies that are doing low carbon technology and things like that. And, and talk about the energy transition, not as a threat to people's livelihoods, not as something that is being done to them by the federal government, by Justin Trudeau, but a thing that is happening around the world that no one can stop any more than they could stop the development of cars in the 20th century. And that we are really well positioned to take advantage of this, to to grow businesses out of this, to build new livelihoods out of it, just feels like the tone is so negative and so fear-based that it's hard to have that good conversation. And, and maybe that's why the liberals don't come out here as often as they should. Well, I got to give you credit because you're not just saying these things, Max, you're actually doing a podcast that is getting people into discussion who sometimes don't spend much time sharing notes. And I think there's too little of that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, you know, as a, as a sort of concluding question, you know, your organization's mission is to create a, a fact-based, respectful dialogue about this stuff. Has that been successful? And notwithstanding my amazing podcast, what could we be doing to create that space, you know, in, in more places? It feels like there is still this yearning to be involved, and it's more consequential than ever, where be it labor, the people, the trades who build things, be it the First Nations who, if they're on an area of land that is geographically remote from cities, but actually strategically relevant to energy projects or mining or forestry, other things, that there is a very often desire to be economically involved in things that could allow for uh, languages to be restored for people who have left the reserve to come back from the city and have a, a nice life in a way that is like they have in the cities, to have telecommunications, to have all these things. People from reserves want that too. We actually started an event four years ago around that uh, we're doing uh, in, in June. I, th I think those, those are really important strands, but at the same time, we, we can't not be part of the decarbonization uh, dialogue we, we know the science, we know the phenomenon of CO2 in the atmosphere. I don't think there's much of a debate as to what that effect is, but how do we you know, rapidly address it? And I think there's often you know, two solitudes in what are the best ways to do it. So um, I think we could take an example. This is one of those cases we could take an example from Calgary where it really has had to knuckle down and deal with it. They went through 2014, the oil price crash, where everyone had to do the same, but with less. And I think that is part of that long-standing spirit of innovation in Alberta, where they, they created new technologies and, and now there's new challenges. So I do actually feel optimistic that the Canadian role in this can be one that is successful, but I think that we need to do more of what you're doing here. We need to have more of these uh, sessions to share notes and show others that, you know what, we can be talking about these things together, even if we have disagreements too. You know, we did this uh, exercise in Alberta where we we chased around trying to find foreign involvement in, in environmental campaigns. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we actually went out and, and not just in Alberta, maybe across the country and had like public forums 
where we kind of did a bit of a deliberative democracy thing and talked about what do we want from the energy transition? What scares us about it? And, and how are we going to move forward together? And I think that would show people that they have a lot more in common with people they thought they disagreed with than maybe, you know, they got the sense of on Facebook or online or talking to their friends. That's work that governments of all partisan stripes can be doing, should be doing. I want to thank you for joining me here today. I really appreciated it. It was yet another shockingly agreeable conversation, uh, which seems to be the, the trend on this podcast, but that's that's not a bad thing. I agree. All right. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks. That's my conversation with Stuart Muir of ResourceWorks. I really appreciate uh, his willingness to come on the podcast and, and talk to me. You know, like I said, we've crossed swords in the past, so I appreciate him sharing his perspective. I'm dead serious about the idea that I raised at the end of our conversation about having some sort of deliberative democracy exercise around climate and energy policy. I mean, maybe it's a decade too late. Maybe the horse is out of the barn on this one. But the conversations that we have in this country around energy and climate, especially the ones that happen online, are so partisan and so toxic that it's hard to find any common ground. And we need to find that common ground, whether we like it or not. This energy transition is happening, and it's happening to us. If we want to claim some agency here and ensure that we're taking advantage of, of the economic opportunities it presents and living up to our environmental responsibilities, we have to shift from a conflict-oriented perspective to a more constructive one. That's less about setting policy than it is about understanding how that policy is going to impact our lives. Uh, the good news is that the end of the pipeline era, uh, it could create some space for different kinds of conversations. And if we get a government here in Alberta after the May election that, that isn't obsessed with picking fights with Ottawa, we might have some oxygen left over to talk about something else. But make no mistake, if we don't get moving here in Canada, and especially here in Alberta, and start adapting to change rather than just resisting or attacking it, we're going to wind up on the losing end of this global phenomenon. That won't really affect today's decision makers. It won't affect today's corporate executives. It won't even affect today's politicians. But it will raise the price that gets paid by the next generation, and especially the one that comes after it. And I think we'd all do well to remember that. Just a reminder that we need your help to continue our podcast. Every donation helps. And please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kazema. The executive editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Puglesi. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm Max Fawcett. Next week, it's Hot Politics with David Mackay. And I'll see you in two weeks.